Good evening, Mosaic at WDW. It is so good to be here tonight to continue on in our journey in the book of Colossians. Um, But before we get into the passage for tonight, um, there's something about this passage that uniquely brought me back to a really fun memory in my life. So um, to get into that, though, I have to tell you guys something about me. I love unveiling moments. Now, here's what I mean by that. Like every time Apple does a keynote address for like whatever, like where they do all the videos and they put all the production together and it's like just so epic and awesome. And I'm just so excited. And like, it doesn't even matter what they're talking about. Like an Apple car, an iPhone, an i whatever. I'm like, I'm in. I want to see how they're going to do this and how they're going to do this grand unveiling. Um, I, I love that even... Uh, in, in spaces like ministry, when I hear about a friend who is, has this new passion for this new ministry, and I want to hear all about it, and they just unveil this vision for me and what they're excited about. I get excited based on their excitement. But there's uh, one, that, um, one space that has a uniquely fond place in my heart, which is uh, maybe, maybe this is something that you care about a little bit as well, but it's from Disney, and it's something called Dis- um, D23 Expo. Any of you guys know about that? Okay, so D23 Expo is a thing that happens every few years in Anaheim, California. And at D23, what it is, it's like an ultimate Disney fan exhibition. And it is like epic, and everyone's Disney bounding left and right, and it is crazy. But the cool part for me is that they have all these different unveiling keynote addresses in different spaces of the Disney, the Walt Disney Company. So they'll like have things for theme park and entertainment and resorts, and they have movies in the animation studios and live action. They have ESPN and all these different spaces, and they kind of do this grand unveiling of all these things. Now, I haven't been to in a few, um, in a few D23s, but a few times back, I went to it. And, um, and it was, uh, I think, like 2013. Don't quote me on that. But in about 2013, I went. And I was so excited as I went to the live action panel. Because they were going to show all the new movies that were coming out. And I was so excited for it. And I was ready. And like they did like this entire thing with like Chris Evans flew in from Germany while he was on the set of Captain America Winter Soldier. And he like did this entire thing and they like showed fa- footage that they filmed last week in Germany and they showed it to us there in that room. And we we're like, whoa, this is awesome. Like, guys, I'm, I'm a nerd. Um, and I was just like, like just going crazy. And then... Brad Bird walks up to the stage. I don't know if you know who Brad Bird is. He's a director, and uh, he is famous for directing films like The Incredibles and Ratatouille. And uh, he was coming into the live action panel, though, and it was unique because he walked up onto the panel from backstage carrying a box and white gloves. And the box says on it, 1952. Now, I have a picture of what that looked like. I was like in the fourth row or something like that. But Brad Bird, he walks up to the stage and he is ready to unveil this box as 1952. And then what happens is he opens this box and he starts to tell the story. And what's been happening with this box is this box was something that was found in, that he says was found in the Walt Disney archives. And in the archives, it was way out in the back. Like nobody had ever seen this thing since like Walt had died. And it, and it was like this, this very unique and um, cryptic box. So he brings it out and he starts to unpack each piece in it. 
And within it are journals from Walt, um, redacted files that look like something from the CIA, uh, pictures of Walt with Amelia Earhart, and, and like, just like really weird things. And it's also, and he, as he's unpacking it, he's talking about Walt's vision for the future and that he had this master plan for the planet Earth, which kind of fits in with like the Epcot ideal, I guess. And he's like talking about all this stuff, unpacking and unveiling each artifact within it. Now, at that time, I completely was like, is this thing real? It turns out it's all fake. Um, all of it was a prop because what he was getting into is he says, all of these pieces that were found in the archive, I am now going to take and craft a story together that will be called Tomorrowland. Now, if you've seen that movie you know that, uh, that the, all that hype wasn't really worth it. And for me, though, I, I was so excited for this movie. I was like, I am so in. I, I was so in that I literally went and bought the T-shirt. Um, like, I went straight to the gift shop and bought the T-shirt for Tomorrowland. This movie was two years away. So two years later, I'm living here in, in Florida, and me and my brother, he's in town, and we go to downtown Disney at the time to go see Tomorrowland on Thursday night premiere to go watch the movie I had been waiting for for two years. And I walked out of that theater more disappointed than any other movie in my entire life. Now, I mentioned that. I mentioned that story because I've been thinking this week about if each of our lives were like that box, and if in each of our lives, um, someone was to unpack the contents of the box of your life, the, the words that you say, the actions that you do, the experiences you have had, what storyline would it tell? I think about this in my life. Would it, would it proclaim a, a, a story focused on me as the main character, where it's about my desires, my dreams, my wants, my selfishness, or would it tell a grander story? What mystery would your life story unveil? As if in your box, if Bradbird was up there and he was unpacking your box, would it declare something epic and wonderful and great? Or would it settle for something less than awesomeness? Does it reveal a story more focused on your own political beliefs than your, than your allegiance to Jesus? Now, I know that not everyone in this room would um, actively follow Jesus or would even call themselves to be a Christian. Um, but I would imagine whether you are or not, you probably know somebody who is a Christian. And what I was thinking about this week is in the life of someone who has given their allegiance to Jesus, what should the contents of their box, what story should those contents come together to weave into? In other words, what should the Christian life look like? Now, we've been journeying through the book of Colossians, and so far we've been talking about how Paul starts off with this grand and beautiful introduction. And he starts with this, with this beautiful hymn, the Messiah hymn, the, this poem that, that talks about the fact that Jesus is both the Lord of creation and the fact that he is the creator of the cosmos, that all things were made by, through, and for him and for his glory. And also he's the Lord of recreation or redemption, that through him, the brokenness of this world is being actively undone. Then last week, we went from being all zoomed out, where Paul kind of begins to zoom in to the story of humanity, and specifically into the story of this church in Colossae. 
This idea that they were more separated from God than they were ever aware of. The level of brokenness that they were living in was incredible, but God's plan of reconciliation is far greater than our brokenness, which means that we don't have to earn anything from God at any point. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the account to actually buy anything from him. Instead, our only response is to rest and to trust in him. See, Paul finishes that thought where we landed last week with this idea where he says, and this is to what I've been called to be a minister. So tonight we're going to continue on in Colossians 1 and verse 24. If you happen to have one of the Colossians journals, um, you um, are more than welcome to pick one up in the lobby if you do not have one. Um, We are on page 8 in the Colossians journal. Otherwise, Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to be reading out the ESV translation so that makes it easier to follow along. Now, Paul ended last, where we were at last week talking about bringing himself up now for the first time. And tonight, where we're going to be resting at is so, uh, where Paul's going to be talking a lot about himself. But it's important to note that Paul isn't just calling himself out because he needed this church to recognize how cool he was. But you see, Paul believed that we see the gospel most clearly in the lives of one another. So he continues from that, this point to show that he is an imperfect prototype worth following. Watch the gospel lived out in my life. Be encouraged by what God is doing in and through me. Let, it, let the gospel be transforming you as you are watching the way it is transforming me. And as you do that, you will discover the mystery of the gospel. The unveiling of the gospel is more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And in fact, Paul is saying, here's my box. I'm going to unpack the contents and I want you to see what story it's weaving together. So he starts in verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now to them, God chose to make known this mystery. God To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone, that him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul from a big picture perspective in this passage is talking about the unveiling of the mystery of the gospel and how it's been presented through his life. So starting in verse 24, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now I go back and reread that because one, it's a very interesting statement, right? Because first of all, Paul is talking about the persecution, his suffering that he has suffered on behalf of the church and for the cause of Jesus. His persecution unveils the mystery of the gospel. 
but what is this business that he's talking about where he's saying that I am filling up something that is lacking in Jesus? Something that it was missing? Now, that's really weird, especially if you take a second to really, um, to really stew on that. That somehow Jesus, as Paul was just talking about, right, the cosmic creator of the cosmos, the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption, needs something from Paul. Like Paul has something that, that Jesus couldn't do on his own. As if Jesus wasn't sufficient. As if Jesus wasn't enough. And if we read it out of context, it's exactly how this sounds. So if we were to take it out of context, it kind of sounds as if Paul is coming in and filling in the missing edges of the painting that Jesus has been doing. It's also made me think this week about puzzles. Um, before having kids, Allie and I liked having a puzzle sometimes in our living room. And it was like, you know, a thousand piece puzzle or whatever. And we were definitely not quick at it. So it would be there for like a month. Since having kids, um, we don't have puzzles in the front rooms. <laughs> the only puzzles we have in our house are the ones with like really big squares now. And they're like nine pieces. Um, for good reason. Uh, but to read this passage out of context makes this passage kind of sound like as if Like if Allie and I were building a puzzle, right? And we had spent hours and hours and months and months working on this puzzle. And we come close to the end of the puzzle. And then all of a sudden we realize that there is a missing piece. Okay? There's a missing piece. So we begin to comb through the house, scouring the house, pulling up cushions all over the place, trying to find out where is the missing piece to this puzzle. And then our three-year-old Asher walks into the room Goes, looks under the couch, sees the puzzle piece perfectly, brings it over the puzzle, puts it in, and goes, I did the puzzle. Now, if we were to read it out of context, that's kind of what this sounds like, right? Like, like, G, like there was something lacking in Jesus. Like he didn't have the actual power to finish the puzzle on his own. So Paul comes in and goes, there you go. I got it. You're welcome, Jesus. But that is not what is happening here. See, there is not a version of the unveiling of the mystery of the gospel that requires Paul's participation or yours or mine. See, Jesus was not at a loss at any point since the creation of everything. He is not at a loss. He's not going, well, uh, maybe this whole plan of redemption and rescue thing that I had going on Maybe it just wasn't good enough. Let me see if I can, see who, who's still there? Who can I send in? Let me see. Paul, perfect. That's awesome. No, that's not what's happening at all. And in fact, Jesus wasn't even surprised when his, that his followers would suffer persecution because that can also be out of this, right? Where you can think, man, if Jesus really is supreme, if Jesus really is enough, why does somebody like Paul have to suffer persecution at all? If God is powerful, why do Christians suffer? Why is persecution a reality? Well, see, here's what Jesus says in John 15. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. See, Jesus wasn't surprised that his, that his followers like Paul would endure persecution. This is why uh, the reformer Martin Luther, he once was quoted saying this. He said, they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? Now, despite what I wish I could tell you, a life following Jesus does not guarantee you freedom from hardship. 
which is a common reality for all of humanity, believers and non-believers. But according to Jesus, it actually will get worse for those who follow after him in the space of persecution. See, despite what I wish I could tell you, each of the disciples of Jesus were, faced heavy persecution and all but one of them ended up dying the death, uh, a death for their allegiance to Jesus. Paul himself, the guy who was writing this letter, he lived a really charmed life before his encounter with Jesus. He had power, he had prestige, he had authority, he had respect. Then he follows Jesus and everything goes right out the window in his life. Craziness ensues. Even today, persecution of the church continues. Um, Even right now, over 340 million Christians are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Over the last year alone, over 4,500 Christians died for their faith. So why would Paul, hanging out over in Rome who is suffering persecution and imprisonment, write this letter in Colossae where they are experiencing um, hardship and persecution in the middle of a world that was, was, was hostile towards the gospel. Why would, why would they persevere? And today, why would believers, 340 million of them, continue to persevere in their faith despite the difficulties of what it could mean in hardship and persecution? Why from China to Myanmar, to, from Russia to Venezuela, how can so, mil, so many millions of individuals declare their allegiance to Jesus when their lives and their livelihoods are on the line? Well, you see, it's because it's not, it's not because there's a missing puzzle piece. That, G, that Jesus is like, if you guys do this, then all of a sudden my redemption plan is complete. Because Jesus is powerful enough. But instead, as Jesus' half-brother James would later write, he would say it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's a very interesting statement, right? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, through all of life's circumstances, including persecution, as Paul was talking about, we get to unveil the steadfast faith rooted in a hope beyond our circumstances. We get to reveal that no matter how much the enemy wants to come and like like that knuckleheaded um, toddler that comes in and wants to destroy the puzzle, like that's our spiritual enemy and that's what his desire is for the mystery of the gospel. The puzzle's complete and it can't be harmed. It's done. We can't damage it either because it's not based on our works. It's based on Jesus and what he has done. And here's why that's good news. Because it's not like then we go, wow, Jesus, great job. All right, I'm gonna go back to my room now and hang out. No, no. What Jesus does is he takes that beautiful puzzle and he says, it's complete. Here, go show it to everyone else. Go, go show it to everyone else in the house. Go run it out around the neighborhood, showing how beautiful this masterpiece is. See, the puzzle is complete. And now Jesus has simply invited us in into the action. And when followers of Jesus throughout the centuries have been persecuted for, for their allegiance to Jesus, what they are actually unveiling is the mystery of the gospel to the world. That even suffering and death cannot 
cannot vanquish the joy and the hope that Jesus alone has secured. His power is enough. And this is why for those, for those of us who suffer and will suffer persecution, that just becomes another piece in our box, another artifact that tells the story of the gospel. His power is enough. Now, Paul would go on to write to the church in Philippi. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And in this passage, he puts his own ministry forward as an imperfect prototype to be followed. So in verse 25, Paul continues. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. See, Paul is unveiling the mystery of the gospel through the stewardship of his mystery, of of his ministry. Paul saw the role of his ministry was pretty simple, to follow Jesus, the true suffering servant, by being a suffering servant on behalf of the church, that he would go and lay down his life so that the church would, would be able to see more of Jesus. See, Paul's simple commission was this, to simply unveil the mystery of the gospel through his life, his words, and his actions. And we get the same singular focus. Um, I like the way he writes it right here. He says, to make the word of God fully known. That's his why. His why is that he was called to make the word of God fully known. Paul believed the word of God was power set loose. That if you knew the full story of God that he was telling throughout the scriptures and throughout the world, you'd be forever changed. It reminds me of something that Charles Spurgeon once wrote. He said, defend the Bible. I would just as soon defend a lion. Just open the cage and it'll defend itself. See, it's power set loose. And Paul simply saw his ministry as unveiling the true story of God to a world who would believe a thousand false narratives. That they had assembled the pieces within each box and came to all the wrong conclusions. Does that sound familiar to our world? You see, each of you who follow Jesus, you have a ministry. You have a ministry. The location is just unique to wherever you find yourself at any given moment in time. And your mission is equally as important and simple as Paul's to simply unveil the mystery of the gospel through your words, your actions, in your life. So then Paul continues in verse 26. I love this. Get this. So to make the word of God fully known. So then he kind of expands on that thought. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now the saints here are any of you who follow after Jesus. The sainthood of all believers, the church in Colossae, they were the saints. This, this mystery had been revealed to it. The unveiling has happened. The keynote was already done. And now they get to go out and be an ambassador for that, to go and declare that mystery to everyone else. See, the mystery has already been unveiled. Now, something important to know, and this is something we're really going to um, have to touch on continually from this point on throughout the book of Colossians. But in Colossae, there was this religious thought that emanated from the Roman world. And it was this thought that was beginning to make its way like a cancer into the church in Colossae. And it was bent on the pursuit of something called hidden knowledge. 
the, the way of um, the, the religious bend was called Gnosticism. Now, they believed that if you did the right things to please God or the gods and you had all the right kind of faith and you paid all the right kind of money and did all the right kind of practices that you would receive some hidden knowledge that was exclusive to you and to you alone. That you would kind of get in on the secrets. And Paul is kind of using that language and flipping it on his head. Like, you want hidden knowledge? You already have it. It's Jesus. The mystery's already been unveiled. It's Jesus. And even today, we can put our hope in pursuing some other piece of hidden wisdom rather than the mystery that has already been revealed to us in the gospel. Now, in our world, there are various tools that we can use to pursue new insight or knowledge into ourselves or into God's desires for our lives. Now, the reality is that some of them are helpful, for sure. And some of them are rooted in the brokenness of planet death and empowered by our spiritual enemy. But whether the tool is helpful or not, here is the good news. Here is the good news. We are already recipients of the mystery that is beyond imagination. Here's the mystery. Here's the mystery unveiled. The king that your heart has always longed for has already come on the scene. He arrived, he died, and he was resurrected from the grave. And before he went to be with his father, he sent us his spirit, his, the Holy Spirit of God, that we would be empowered to do things even greater than he would, according to Jesus. He empowered us by giving us not only the Holy Spirit, but also the scriptures, the word of God as well, so that we could know how to hear him and understand him better, what it meant to love God and to love people well. But not only that, we also get the benefit of being recipients of the biblical community that is the local church, that we would be able to, in community, be able to discern what was good and pleasing and right to God. Because on our own, we will definitely get it wrong. And then he sends us into the world to unveil this mystery to others. The mystery is already unveiled. And it's so much more beautiful than I could ever phrase it. We don't have to search for some new hidden mystery. Even though getting new, new tools can be helpful for sure. But we can rest in the fact that the greatest mystery is already unveiled in the gospel. Now, Paul continues in verse 27. He says it this way, to them, God chose to make known. So to them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, um, uh, Romans, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the glory of this mystery? Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. God is unveiling his mystery to us. And not only that, he is adorning us as if it were jewelry, covering us with his own glory, which is Christ in you. Jesus is mega concerned about his glory. And he is putting it on display through the life of his church. And as we unveil the gospel, as we unveil a gospel message of hope and reconciliation to a world that is wounded with deep divides beyond our own human ability to reconcile. Just like the, the Jews and the Gentiles were separated by a chasm, we are now bridged together into the same family. People that have no business being together in socioeconomic classes, 
in political arenas, in national identities, all of it has been bridged in Jesus. And now what used to be those difference makers are now bringing unity in the church that together we would display the glory of Jesus so that together that we would have our gaze transfixed on the beauty of the mystery of the gospel. Now Paul finishes this thought in verse 28, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we proclaim. That's it, right? If we were to get our box and start unveiling it, what is it supposed to proclaim? What's the story that hopefully for those of us who follow after Jesus, that it demonstrates it is him we proclaim. It's Jesus. But here's the interesting part. Look at how he says we are to do this. How do we proclaim him? By warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, as we unveil the mystery of the gospel through our words and our actions in our lives, we discover a privilege beyond imagination. And this is to proclaim the glory of Jesus. Now, the only thing is that we aren't always good about knowing what that means. What does that look like? We each have a default that we might go into. We're like, well, we might think, what does it mean to display the glory of Jesus, to make him known, to proclaim him? You might think, well, it just means like kind of just go out and be kind and nice to people most of the time. But look how specific Paul begins to get. In fact, it's kind, of, um, uh, it, it's kind of squeamishly specific. First, I want to talk about a word, though, that he uses. He uses the word everyone three times. And in the Greek, this, what he is getting at is he is not, he, when, by saying the word everyone, he is not just talking about to everyone in the church, that for all Christians do this. He is also not talking about every, just everyone outside of the church. He is using a holistic all-encompassing word in everyone. In fact, I literally, I did the word study on this word, everyone, and it literally means every creature with a human face, all right? So every creature with a human face is included in these everyones. Now that's very significant because watch what Paul is about to get into. So what's the first thing he says? Warn everyone. Ugh, now this is already getting weird, right? I mean, just reading that to you makes me feel kind of weird inside because we don't live in a culture that really values gospel warnings, right? Or warnings in general at all, right? And in fact, that, if, if you're like still listening at this point, that probably makes you feel like, oh no, where does this go from here? And the truth is, is that many of us have probably experienced individuals who have handled gospel warnings very poorly. Maybe you think of like the Westboro Baptist type of protesters yelling at the funerals of soldiers or condemning those who attend pride. And you're like, I don't want to warn like that. So I'm just not ever going to warn at all. See, that kind of warning, though, is totally not what Paul's talking about. It's important to note, though, that this doesn't mean that we don't step into difficult conversations because we do even when it's tough, even when it's not fun. And in fact, we need to look to the way that Jesus spoke and the way that Paul wrote about this. Now, Jesus specifically, when it comes to the one that makes us all probably the most squeamish, which is the conversation about the eternal reality of hell, we can go, well, I don't want to go around telling telling people, turn to Jesus or you're going to hell. Like that's, that's not what I would want to do. Or 
And the truth is, is you're probably not supposed to do that anyway. And the reason I say that is because Jesus gave a really great model of this. Now, Jesus spoke about hell often, but he never did it to somebody who is not one of his followers or somebody who is not a religious leader at the time. Now, why did he pick those unique groups to warn about hell? Because he was giving them a wake-up call. Do you realize what's happening? Do you realize the cosmic realities at stake here? You need to wake up and love people well. Stop trying to be a bouncer to the door of the kingdom of God and start being an escort in. Demonstrate love. Wake up. There really is a kingdom and there really is a domain of darkness. And we have the opportunity to partner with people in introducing them to the gospel of light. Wake up, church. That's Paul. That's Jesus. Now, so to warn everyone, though, this doesn't just mean to warn those who are outside of the family of God. Part of what it means to call everyone, though, is not just to warn them with bad news. In fact, what I would argue is that any version of warning people with bad news, your, your best shot is guilt. That's your best shot. And guilt is a really bad um, fuel source. It doesn't go very far. It kind of kills the tank. But you know what is a really good fuel source? Hope and good news. The cool part is we got a lot of that in Jesus. <laughs> so we carry that forward into our conversations. We love people well. We introduce them to Jesus and we let them know that they could be adopted into the forever family of God. That is mind-blowing, unveiling the mystery of the gospel. That's where it gets good. But we're not, again, now I've only talked so far about the way that we relate to those who do not consider themselves to be a part of the family of God. But it says, warning everyone. Everyone. Believers too. Because see, we need to warn each other. I need you to remind me to keep my eyes and my gaze transfixed on Jesus. We need each other. Warn everyone. Remind everyone of the goodness of Jesus and how anything less is settling for second best. We need to warn everyone. And then he continues teaching everyone in all wisdom. Now, this comes straight from Jesus in the Great Commission where Jesus says to go out into all the nations to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that I have commanded you. See, it's not just about getting people to pray a quick prayer. It's about to journey with people in a lifelong journey of discipleship with Jesus, to sit under his teachings, to follow his way, to learn what that means. So we go and we share what we have discovered about Jesus and what we learn about in the, in the process of discipleship. This is why at Mosaic Church, we take discipleship so seriously and we are learning to do it better hopefully all the time. Because this is actually our call. Our call is not to just put on a good show. That's not it. It is to go and to make disciples. This is why we have things like D groups, discipleship groups here at the Disney campus, so that you would connect with other believers and learn what it means to actually love people well, to love God well, to know who God really is and discover who you really are as part of it. That's why all of this matters, that we would teach Everyone. You see, as we teach everyone, we, we discover why this all matters. And this is where Paul lands us his role in tonight, that we may present everyone mature in 
Christ. Present everyone. Imagine if we all lived every moment as stewards of our days and made Jesus known by our words, our actions, and our lives, that we would get the opportunity to enter into the brokenness of this world, but with the hope of the one who brings the broken pieces and puts them into something beautiful. The one that takes all the dis, this disjointed counterfeit parts that we found in our boxes and shows that, that all of it can be built up together to show one storyline and it points to the cross. See, this is what the hope should be, right? Shouldn't this be our hope? That we'd be able to present everyone in our sphere of influence mature in Christ. That whatever small part we get the opportunity to play in one another's lives, that we would maximize that opportunity to truly present one another, not just like kind of getting in by the skin of your teeth, right? Not just, hey, pray this quick prayer so that you would have like eternal fire insurance, right? That we would present one another mature in Christ. I want you to, I want you to present me mature in Christ. I want to present you mature in Christ. I want us to do this together in community. And those who have never been a part of, of what it means to be a part of the family of God, that we would be bringing them in and building them up to be mature in Christ. That's such good news, right? What a weighty call. What a beautiful call. And this is simply Jesus handing us the puzzle because remember, the saving work, that's all Jesus. What this is not about is you saving people. You don't got it in you to save people and neither do I. That's the good news. We don't save people. God does not require us for the puzzle, but we are still invited in. We are handed the puzzle and told, go show it to everyone. Unveil the mystery of this puzzle to everyone. See what I have accomplished and celebrate it with everyone. Now my hope for our church and for the global and diverse family of God that expands around the world, that we would not just be about the business of converting people, of getting a quick prayer, but that we would all be presented together on the other side of eternity, mature in Christ, and that we would be guilty of something, and specifically one thing, that we'd be guilty of lives well-lived to the glory of Jesus. Lives that make Jesus known. Lives that proclaim him. Now, thinking back to my overhyped experience back at D23, imagine walking in on that stage. We're all walking on that stage and we open up the box that was our lives. And in it are the contents, our words, our actions, our life experience, the beauty and the brokenness all together. But through it all, Jesus comes up and he displays how all of it told a story that led to him in my box, in your box, in your box, in your box, that all together we see how God was intricately, intricately weaving together a story beyond anything we could comprehend, unveiling a mystery so beautiful that we can't possibly comprehend it until he displays it. This is what my hope is for us, for our community and for the church around the globe. But this can only happen if we truly abide in him, if we take time to truly be with him. So with that, I want to offer you a simple challenge for this week as I invite the band to go ahead and come on up. I want to encourage you to simply meditate on this passage this week. 
Spend some time in this passage, especially verse 128. I want you to seek the guidance of the Spirit on it. I want you to ask him what spaces in your life, who, which people in your life would he desire to have you display the gospel to, proclaim him, make him known into. See, God does not need us, yet he invites us. You know, it's really cool. I, I think often about the unique mission and vision of this campus, that we exist to, to proclaim Jesus in a very unique context at Walt Disney World, the cast members. And I think about that. And I think about sometimes how my heart and my, my love and my burden for Disney cast members wavers to and back and forth all the time. Or sometimes I'm like, man, I haven't even thought about loving cast members well. Wow, that's weird. Like, how can I do that and be able to pastor well? But here's what I do know. Jesus loves the cast members at Walt Disney World more than any of us ever will. He loves your roommates more than you ever will. If you have kids, he loves your kids more than you ever will. Whoever the loved ones in your life are, whoever the people in your sphere of influence are, he loves them more than you ever will. And yet, you are invited and on the journey in their lives. So may we be good stewards of our ministries. Would you journey in prayer with me right now? Father, what an incredible opportunity we have. What a blessing beyond anything that we could deserve on our own, that we would be able to display the gospel and proclaim it to the world. Father, I pray that this week, that, these, that this passage would not return void, but that you would use it in our hearts, in our conversations that we have with one another and in um, and in our time with you in prayer, that we would genuinely take time to, to consider our box, our words, our actions, and our life experiences. And that we would see your already existing faithfulness. And I pray for those of us who are here in person or online who do not know Jesus, who would not say that they follow after and they wouldn't call themselves a Christian. And I pray for them that you would reveal yourself, that you would unveil this beautiful mystery to them tonight. God, this is something beyond our ability. We don't have the ability to do this. I don't, we don't, but you do. You're good, you're kind, you're loving, and you are so much more faithful than we could ever hope or aspire to be. So would you display that in us and through us tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.